0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. 100% employee owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
3: All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you, of course, are listening to the Farm Report. It has been a long time, friends. And I've like weirdly got that uh, Eminem song where he's like, guess who's back, back again. (laughs) It's like Shady's back. But no, David's shaking his head in the booth. Um, Anyway, I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, We are in studio, kind of kicking off uh, the fall season. We are joined by Lauren Cardelli. Lauren, welcome to the studio.
4: Thank you, Aaron.
3: Um, So we are going to be talking about an organization that Lauren is at the helm of. He is founder, operator, overall boss man of a growing culture. Um, A growing culture, their mission is to... Uh, is advancing a culture of farmer autonomy and agroecological innovation. And their vision is a sustainable food system, inclusive of farmers and healthy for the environment. A mission and vision I can get behind. Mm. Um, So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about um, the work you guys are currently doing. But before we get to the now, let's get in the way back machine. I'm going to be making a lot of bad puns today, apparently, or not even puns, just bad jokes bear with me um can you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of the organization and kind of the seeds of the idea how it
4: started and and then like
3: you know what you were doing at the beginning versus you know what we're doing now
4: cool Um, let's think about how far back we want to (laughs) go
3: you're like i was born
4: (laughs) (laughs) um let's see the Agriculture to me was always fascinating. Growing up in Westchester County, you know, distant from agrarian communities, um, our connection to place and food was something that was magnetic to me, but was absent. You know, growing up in a Puerto Rican and Jewish family, food was a part of our culture. Um, what we came around together to share stories around, but. Um, the on the ground experiences of actually cultivating and being close to the cultivators um, was something that was distant and so on my quest to become more connected I, I went to the Putney School in Vermont where you'd wake up at 5 in the morning and milk cows before <laughs> classes. You're like, there I yeah. was
3: a, a Puerto Rican boy from Westchester <laughs> <laughs> milking cows with the Vermont woodchucks Yeah. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. Um, And that was like an incredible experience. I still remember Mavis, one of our brown Swiss prize cows. Um, Incredible. We used to take naps with her out in the field. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I got this connection. And and I had some learning disabilities and language disorder, speech impediment. um, And being able to express myself through landscape design, through working with a grain... animals and, and crops and, and cultivating, you know, my own environmental and social community, I was able to really um, find confidence in myself and, 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 and build my own narrative. Um, and that was something that was really powerful to me and led me to, after high school, to decide I didn't want to go to school and travel the world. And I got a one-way ticket when I was 18 to Latin America and started traveling um, without an agenda or a plan.
3: Whoa. And your parents were just like, "See you later, son?"
4: No, my mom didn't sleep. You know, my mom's yeah. the Jewish one, so she okay. was up all night. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was hard um for them, but it was it was a process that I had to go through for myself. Um, and I think we're all grateful for it. But there was a time where I long story short, I met this smooth-talking Belizean man at a bar. Um, and he convinced me to go really far into the bush um, and trust him and learn how to live off the land. And so about 10 o'clock at night, we loaded up with some basic groceries and tobacco pickup and drove for hours and hours. And finally, we in this logging village that wasn't even connected by any kind of roads but logging roads. Um, then we get there, and he says, all right, we have an hour and a half, two hour hike into the bush. Um, so we hike into the bush. I remember the stars, the night, hearing all the animals. That was like monkeys. crazy. So yeah. you're
3: like, uh, what's that? It was insane. <laughs> I
4: Trust. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, and so we get into this place. He puts me on a hammock. I can't see anything. I wake up the next morning and I'm in a slash and burn encampment. There's a river running through it. We are growing crops, and there's him and a elder, nine fingered elder. Named Tiple, um, and we begin to. Uh, I joined with them, and we. They teach me everything from finding wild medicinals to hunting to cultivating our own food to cooking to cleaning to, you know, everything. You were um, in it. I was in it. It was like Bush 101. It was crazy.
3: Why do you think that he was like this dude?
4: Um, long stories. <laughs> I yes. don't know. Um, I think it was. I, I, I don't know. It was it was an interesting time in my life. It got exploitive of me a little bit, and I ended up leaving, but I, I really value that experience. Um, and um, I learned an incredible amount. And there was when I realized the work that I was supposed to be doing in this world. Um, we had been not successful at hunting and Um, so I walked to the logging village one day, about an hour and a half hike with my machete, um, to get some meat. I wanted to buy some chickens from one of the local farmers. And as I'm negotiating the price of the chickens, I hear this screaming. And I run over there and there's a man about my age today holding his son. And his son's body was limp and pale. And his son had died from drinking pesticides that a father used on the farm. And it was at that moment, um, surrounded by a community uh, in sorrow uh, that I realized the gateway to environmental erosion was cultural and knowledge erosions Um, and through the dismantling of rural communities, through the dehumanization of rural communities uh, industrial agriculture thrives Um, how just an hour and a half walk away, were we growing, not using any chemicals, sustainable, local and indigenous techniques, um, cultivating enough food to survive, surplus to sell, um, but then at this community connected to the market, that they had lost that knowledge. Um, and the kind of agriculture that they were taking up and what that meant to their communities, to their pocketbook, to their social fabric, um, and to that boy's life. And so at that moment, I realized that in order to change our food system, we have to start recognizing the local and indigenous knowledge and support the culture of agriculture.
3: So, so what does that mean via a growing culture? How do you, how do you guys do that?
4: Um, we have a three-step program. Um, God, that sounded like a rehab kind of thing. It was like... <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm like, three over 12, I'll take it. (laughs) Let's get there. First acknowledging the problem. (laughs) Yeah.
4: (laughs) Um, No, what we do is, the first step is on the ground support for innovation development. Um, What that means is local research, local capacity development. That's always led by local communities. That's getting rid of extensionism and foreign individuals into agrarian development, allowing the communities to take hold and find and create systems that work for them, their culture, their community, their soil. So we do that through co-facilitating workshops or supporting local groups and co-ops to facilitate their own workshops. Um, And then we take that knowledge for the second step of our program, which is information exchange. We take those knowledge, those stories, those best practices, the successes, the failures, and we disseminate them horizontally from farmer to farmer, from farmer group to farmer group, from grassroot NGO to grassroot NGO, creating a coalition of um, agrarians and agrarian organizations that can learn from each other to collectivize the innovation while democratizing the knowledge and information. Um, the third step is advocacy which is where we work to create op-eds, to create documentaries, films, media, um, voices that where we strive to share the narrative and perspective of the grassroots with a capital G, the ones who actually grow our food, the peasant food web, the 2.5 billion people that exist in our food system today. Um, and we try to change the way we view them because we believe that changing our food system starts with changing the way we the world views farmers.
3: So lots of details uh, at www.agrowingculture.org um where where you know you guys can get in and obviously support their work but also see some really compelling videos. I want to understand how you know so you have this kind of come to the Lord experience and then what, like, how did how do you go from like being in the middle of the South American bush to having you know a website and videos and a three pronged system? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um. Yeah, it took. Let's see. So, it probably took seven years. Yeah, it took about seven years till I started a Chrome culture. Um. I guess. I kept traveling mm-hmm. and then I decided that I wanted to go to study sustainable agriculture. And one of the only schools that was offering that, that was, and it was the only school that was, um, offered a curriculum in it, but also you had to work and had a work component. So we had a, an amazing farm with, you know, grass fed cattle, fair to finish pork operation, growing our own organic grains, um, you know crop rotations tractor work combining maize I mean this was a full operation um alongside the courses and that was Warren Wilson College in Asheville North Carolina um and so what I did was when I left Latin America I got a job in a factory in the Midwest to try to motivate myself to learn um and go to school and then
3: wait a minute (laughs) wait a minute you got a factory job to motivate. So you were like, because the factory job was so horrible, you're like, I want to go back to school. Oh yeah, was like that was so that's the motivation. Is I, that worked what you mean? On
4: a, I worked on a on a line for ten hours a day, um, where if you slowed down, they had to stop and everybody stared at you. Right. Um, and yeah, I did that. Um, I lived with my grandparents um, in the Midwest. Saved up some money, uh, applied to school. The only school I applied to was Warren Wilson College. Um, I also applied for a scholarship for, through Annie's um, Natural Food Company. The I,
3: macaroni and cheese yeah. guys, white white cheddar mac and cheese.
4: Yeah, ooh, <laughs> loving it. Um, I got a scholarship. I've always wanted, like. A uh, supply like I've always wanted I was like you guys give me a scholarship I want like can I just call up and get boxes of that like I want to be like working with you guys more yeah, so if right? anybody from Annie's out there like please let me know
3: we'll we'll work for <laughs> boxed mac and cheese yeah
4: absolutely um forget that craft no way um so yeah I went to school sites in wag you know pulled calves in between classes um learned a lot um and during that Experience. I also helped start an organic brewery, one of the first in the country. Um, Pisco Brewing, it's an amazing company. Um, I was their first employee. And by the time I left, there was over 30 employees. Wow. Um, the, organ- the company was really successful. Um, still going. Great beer. And uh, saved up my money and started a growing culture and pretty much self-financed the first four years of the organization while we were discovering and traveling around the world working with farmers, trying to figure out the best way really, and the way we did that was listening to these communities, exploring these communities, learning from these communities, and we developed our mission and refined it and, and our approach to working with farmers.
3: So I want to talk into a little bit more of the self-financing piece, only because I think when people hear that, they're like, oh, so you had like a secret pile of money somewhere that you were gallivanting around uh, on. But I don't think that's what you mean.
4: Mm-mm. I mean, uh, budget one-way tickets, um, steeping on floors and communities, um, not staying in hotels, um, sometimes steeping outside.
3: Am am I right in saying, like, not having a savings account, really, not having insurance, not having... Oh, we didn't have any insurance, any of that stuff.
4: Yeah. There was no insurance um, for the organization, not for me. Um, And we just went off, and it was only me at that time. mm -hmm. So I went around the world exploring some of the most remote villages and communities around the world to see how do they grow food sustainably, how have they continued to grow for countless generations without depleting the soil, without destroying their social um, culture, you know, and their environment. So I learned from that. I learned how they communicate with each other, how they share, how they tell stories, how they learn, how they experiment. Um, And that took me to almost 40 countries around the world, um, thousands of farmers and... And that experience, you know, so I when I was traveling, like, I think it was the third time I went to Egypt where I was like, you know what, I should actually go see the pyramids. You know, <laughs> I've been <laughs> but, to Africa so many times. I've never been on safari.
3: <laughs> right. So there's like I think, in a in a way what you're kind of describing is like a really self designed course of study
4: at more than an organization. The first years, it was definitely an intensive learning course that I that I put myself through a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of exploring.
3: So then, what happened? You did you come back? You came back to the U.S. and you're like, all right, I've just been on these like years of epic adventures. I have all this information. I have all these feelings about it. People need to know.
4: Well, we were working and writing, and I was doing workshops. You know, throughout even when I started, um, right away when I started, I you know I was helping at Hanoi University, Dalat University in Vietnam, um, doing working with other NGOs, learning. Um, so we, we had programs. They were. They were not entirely our our own, um, but they were in collaboration. Um, And I was writing and sharing, and we had our website and our blog. So, I mean, that journey was taking place, and people were following us and learning. And, you know, actually, my first trip was 18 months before I came back, and that was through South Asia. Um, And was exploring the ways these communities grow, and I remember one day I opened my computer and I get an email from... Dan Kiprop Kibet, a Kalenjin farmer from the Rift Valley in Kenya. And I think it's the email goes, I don't know how I found you, but I did. And I'm really excited. I love learning about the way farmers are growing from around the world. And I'm trying really hard to bring that knowledge to my community in, in the Rift. Um, once a week I hike out for a couple hours into the nearest community where I can walk in and, and we read your work and, and follow you and Thank you for sharing that. So we developed a cultivated relationship, uh, Dan and I, um, and he's like a brother today. and the interesting thing is he he was telling me that he was you know crushing pretty hard and wanted to get married to this wonderful woman. Um, and I encouraged him, and he wrote me again and was like she said, yes, we're excited, we're going to do this." And I surprised him at his wedding, my first trip to Africa. I flew out there to surprise him at his wedding. I came down on a motorcycle with two goats in my arms to bring (laughs) to his dowry.
3: (laughs) So (laughs) um, (laughs) that is a way to make an entrance, for sure. Motorcycling in with some goats. Um, I'm wondering, so... As you're kind of traveling around and you're you're looking to connect with uh, farmers in these communities, can you talk about a little bit like how the show up process works? Like you 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 know walk up to someone's door, you walk up to a person. Mm. Like I'm assuming you you know you don't speak all the language. Like how does it? How's it work? How does it work? Like and, and how do people react to you?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I have to say, I'm really bad at language and really good at it in some ways. Like, I'm really bad at figuring it out, like grammar and everything, but I'm really good at like my confidence in it, and I learn like the phrases and I and I and I approach it like um, from that angle um, strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also there's so many ways to communicate, and at first my approach was different than what we do today. So at first, when I was during that discovery phase, I would research communities, try to find connections. Talk to farmers who would then would connect me with other farmers and it became like a domino effect. Right. Um some communities you'd just hear about this legendary technique that they were doing and you'd want to go and you'd hike up a mountain and look at this terracing or whatnot and, and they'd say, What is this dirty white dude doing over here in this community? There's no hotels. And usually they'd come up to you and say, What are you doing here? you know, you'd like you'd figure it out whether you spoke or not. And you'd come together over meals. And, and, and eating the food and the culture and and you and you'd form relationships you know I feel so fortunate to have you know brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers all over the world that, that I've met through this journey um, that that I love you know and and have grown relationships with and learned tremendous from you know um, nowadays with our work we partner with groups so we get we don't want to come in and and oppose ourselves. And so we get requests to partner with groups, certain uh, participatory NGOs, grassroots NGOs, um, reach out to us or we have partners with them. And they say, we said, we're interested in doing some groups in your network. Which groups would you recommend? Or, you know, um, it's that kind of thing. And, and we start working, but it's always, it's always requested. Um, you know, and, and I don't like to think that, I wasn't opposing myself when I was learning and exploring in those early years, but there definitely was kind of, an exploration aspect of it. You know, there are times where, you know, you come to communities and you're walking and you're just watching and learning and, you know, sleeping on the side of the road and hiking back the next day or something. You know, there's only one time in my whole life where a farmer um, wasn't open and, and excited when I asked a question, you know, or, or or walked up to them. And I think that was in Malaysia and it was a, a Chinese farmer and he said, where are you from? And I said, America. He said, well, you're the ones who destroyed the food system. So why are you here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Which I'm just, I respect. You're like, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh.
3: <laughs> um, all right. Well, we are going to need to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, the people who make this very show, this very thing you're listening to possible. Um, but hang tight. We'll be back with Lauren Cardelli of A Growing Culture in one moment.
5: I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is.
1: This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees.
5: I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right.
1: The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP, Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs.
4: It just shows how much faith
1: and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process.
5: For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too.
1: Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it.
5: Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part
1: is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole-grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
3: Okay, we are back. Thanks for uh, hanging with us. So, Lauren, you and I actually got connected through um, Haven's Kitchen. You guys are going to be hosting a little bit of a fundraising event there um, later in the month. Can you tell us a little bit about like how that came about and, and how folks can... Uh, come if they're in the New York area
4: absolutely um Alison Kane is amazing
3: yes concur <laughs> um
4: totally awesome and I love everything she's doing at Haven's Kitchen um I was actually connected to her through a good friend Zoe Maya Jones um who actually went to Warren Wilson with me um and we hatched an idea to have a f- benefit um at Haven's Kitchen. So nobody, uh, you know, to, to get the word spreaded and uh, spread out and, um, and to promote us and to um, get volunteers and board members, we wanted to have this event, you know. And I feel really fortunate um, with Allison's support and also Mark Bittman, who... Um, graciously offered to host the dinner, um, and he'll be speaking at the event. And he's been in, an incredible supporter and, and an inspiration. Um, I love his writing. and um,
3: So, yeah, Mark, a longtime colonist for the New York Times. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, uh, the ubiquitous cookbooks, How to Cook Everything, yes. <laughs> How to Bake Everything. Um uh, yeah, I mean, Mark, obviously, in, in many ways, has, like, set a lot of the tone for different food conversations, uh, nationally for a long time, so, like, what a, what a coup to have him kind of at your side and, like, introducing you a little bit to more of the, the New York food scene. Now, you guys are Absolutely. working with, uh, uh, did I get that right, is your chef?
4: Yeah, she's amazing, and, uh, um... Really conscious um, chef, and she she brings together the flavors from her home, from her from her migrant culture, um, and we're really excited. We wanted to do something with local food, but with a global feel. And mm-hmm. Yowende is bringing an, an amazing multiple course Nigerian feast. I'm talking about red snapper soup. I'm talking about lamb shanks. Um, cassava pudding. I mean, it's gonna be incredible. Um, and so I'm so fortunate to be working with with Allison, with Mark, and with Yawande.
3: Awesome. And tickets are still available.
4: Tickets are still available. There'll be a discount if you if you put the discount code Heritage for all you folks out there. Nice. Um, we'll give you a discount. Uh,
3: and you can find those uh, via just Eventbrite. It's the AGC benefit with Mark Bittman at Haven's Kitchen. So, all right. Let's wave our magic wand a little bit. Uh, it is post um, September fourteenth. Uh, the event has been a wild success. Uh, you have a, a chunk of money, uh, a handful of interest. Um, you're going into, uh, you know, planning for the fall and the kind of next phases of a growing culture. What is on the horizon for you guys?
4: Awesome. Well. We've just launched our Library for Food Sovereignty, which is the world's first um, democratic platform governed by the community that actually grows our food. Um, This is a platform of knowledge, of stories, of successes and failures. Um, It's a digital library, um, and uh, we're really excited about that. We've spent years building up the -the on-the-ground communities the partnerships with local NGOs and farmer cooperatives that are really the backbone of this community, because not all this community is digitally connected, but um, they're connected through co-ops, through um, NGOs and local m- movements, and we've really built this analog community to to strive to create a digital community where knowledge can be shared without geographical or language barriers. Okay connecting farmers from Borneo to Bolivia, you know, from Mongolia to Madagascar.
3: And then, so like what types of things can they, if if I'm like a farmer coming into the system, like what are some of the things that I might find or expect to find?
4: What's really important to me is that we tend to think about the innovations of agriculture as just environmental. They're not. They're also social. So they're all, how do I get my kids in school? How do I get into local politics so that we can advocate for our rights? How do we deal with a corrupt middle bed? How do I you know, advocate for myself? So you have that social aspect, which is so deeply important. And the more we've worked with farmers, we've realized that the culture of agriculture is so important mm-hmm. and, and that social innovations um, is just as important as the environmental ones also will have the environmental innovations, which is, how do I deal with this pest? How do I build my soil? How do I deal with this slope and, and grow without creating massive erosion? How, you know, how do we diversify? What kind of companion planting remedies for insect pest management? Um, you know, so it's an amazing just jumbo of, of knowledge, but it's absent from academia or NGO Research, you know, this is this this is coming from agrarians and grassroots communities, so that they can have their voice and we can have a a database of their knowledge.
3: One of the, I feel like one of the things that um, you know jumps to mind for me is that like there's a little bit of a it's um, not like a fear factor, but I'm like it's a little um, subversive this type of exchange, right? Because I'm like, well. But who says? But how will I know it will work? But like, but like, how is it proven to be like efficient or effective across different things? And so, Mm -hmm. um, is that just my like kind of uh, big egg Western bias jumping in, or like where you know, like I don't, I'm like sitting here and feeling a little bit like, oh, I don't really know where to put those. Questions or that energy that like um that are just coming up for me.
4: Yeah, no, no that's absolutely fair. Um, and I, and I love that question. Thank you for bringing that up. This knowledge, at first, is not to be looked at as information as much as inspiration. You know, looking at how farmers deal with certain issues. You know, they they plant on this sloped land because every three meters they put this. Deep rooted crop, um, nitrogen fixing tree, this deep rooted nitrogen fixing tree, right? This grows quick. They dwarf it so it forms a natural hedge. What deep rooted nitrogen fixing tree do we have that we can use? How can we alter? How can we learn and apply that, right? So it's like Isaac Newton, right? You remember him for sitting under a tree and an apple falling on his head. And I like to think that's BS because that's (laughs) like, that never happened. And, And you know, it's no independent thought in an isolated mind. That doesn't exist, right? The revolution may not be televised, but it will be open source. And that's what we're <laughs> trying to bring. How do we bring this open source grassroots um, energy and, and capacity into agrarian development, agricultural development to, to combat with the industrial monoliths that are taking over our food system? You know, And so I like to look at what... Going back to our homeboy, Isaac Newton, he says, if I've seen further than others, it's by what? Standing on the shoulders of others. Right. And that's the open source revolution. Right. right.
3: Is that, like, to a certain extent, giving permi- people a little bit of, like, inspiration? Like, hey, here are some ideas you might think about. But on some level, too, like, permission to trust your own expertise. Absolutely. So, like, somehow just seeing um, seeing yourself reflected in on the internet is is validating on some level as, like, this is a real thing that someone's doing. It's working. This is how it's working. Um, I think a lot, for some reason, this is an example that's coming up for me. It's like um, when you're over at someone's house and you like pull the milk out of the fridge you put in your coffee, or they pull the milk out of the fridge you put in your coffee. And they're like, oh, shit, it's expired. And you're like, yeah, but how does it taste? Mm -hmm. But like, I get that it says on there, no no good
4: trust yourself but
3: like, like what that. are your like senses telling you what is like mm-hmm. the actual like thing that you're feeling experiencing like saying that. to you and and i think like there's a, a piece of that too where it's like we i think i uh, have been very trained especially in this day and age to, to put a lot of faith in um uh numbers uh analysis academia and i think in a lot of ways like uh Like, that is super valid. But all of those things are created by people, influenced by people. And I think about this, like, Wendell Berry quote where it's, like, when you're outsourcing your food supply, you want to think about, like, what are the motives of the person or organization or entity that you're outsourcing it to? And are they the same? Do they have the same values that you have for your food, for the land, for your family? Um, And... That question, I think, can become like very clarifying when you're coming down to like making the choice of like what to buy today for lunch. Absolutely, you know?
4: absolutely. And I love that. This is great that you're bringing this up because for me, I, I really want to share that the community that grows our food, right, is mostly smallholder farmers. We tend to not believe that, right? 95% of the world's farmers are smallholder farmers, right? Smallholder farmers however, only occupy 19% of agricultural land in the world, yet they produce 70% of our food supply. So industrial ag, with all of its, you know, glamour and knowledge, right, on 81% of agricultural land only supports about 30% at best of our food supply, right? So that's incredible. You want to talk about knowledge and ingenuity, right? It's, It's these communities growing our food, which happen to be in most areas, mostly women of color, right? And, and it's important to recognize that. And then you take that understanding and you look at the narratives and the myths and you look at the exploitation and injustice that's happening. Agrarian communities are under attack through unfair trade deals, through the you know expansion of industrial agriculture, through the loss of their rights and their land and their community to bring down their price so they can't live, which leads to in a world where 850 million people are starving, 70% of them are actually the ones that grow food. They're farmers. And this is injustice, right? So when you look at this continual and consistent oppression and dehumanization of these people, you look at really the, the importance is to see that these communities aren't treated as objects or pawns within a food system, but as amazing, ingenious innovators that are subjects that have action to transform their world and the world around us. Not just consumers, right, that we have all the power, but they too. And how do we bring that and support them to allow them to reshape a food system, to retake their own food system, and that we can benefit. And it's not just a food system that's environmentally sustainable, but one that's socially just and equitable as well.
3: Well, I think just even thinking about this term food system, like, when you say that, what you're talking about is a lot of people. A lot and, like, of like, real people, real emotions, real families. Um, whew, all right. Speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. I definitely, definitely want to encourage folks to check out the website. Again, it's www.agrowingculture.com dot org. Um that dinner again at Haven's Kitchen is on September 14th. Make sure you use the code Heritage uh, to get your sweet discount and come hang with me and Lauren and Allie and of course uh the formidable um Mark Bittman and eat some delicious um lovingly prepared Nigerian food. I cannot wait. Um, for folks who, you know, can't make it or want to uh, engage more with a growing culture or support your work, uh, what do you suggest?
4: What I suggest is logging on, following us um, on social media, signing up for a newsletter, um, and reaching out. My email is lauren at agrowingculture.org. Reach out if uh, you want to be part of the team. Uh, There's always room for everyone to be a part of this movement. And I'm really excited to get to know everyone and to build community um, in North America um, that's wants to, to support the farmers of the world.
3: Awesome. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, guys, we did it. You did it. We made it to the end of another episode of the farm report. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you of course, to heritage radio network, the organization that makes our work possible. They too are a member supported nonprofit. So if you, uh, like what you hear and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you do toss <laughs> us a couple of bucks you can uh, visit the website heritageradionetwork.org click that beating heart um, make a donation there's some good gifts there too so if you want some swag we've, we've definitely got that coming at you um, and then yeah connect via social media it's heritage underscore radio on Instagram lots of fun updates and peeks into all different types of the work that's happening out of this tiny little studio in Bushwick Over 30 shows every week. Anything you could want to learn about in food, drink, or agriculture, they've got you covered. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in.